as a constitutional law attorney, former senior legal advisor and personal counsel to President Donald J. Trump. Jenna Ellis believes in the rule of law and the importance of integrity in our elections. And she's ready to tackle the big cultural and legal issues facing America. This is the Jenna Ellis Show. Here is your host, Jenna Ellis. Happy Tuesday and Thanksgiving week, my friends. Welcome to another episode of the Jenna Ellis Show. I am Jenna Ellis, and today I want to talk through a couple of things because I'm getting a lot of questions. First, about the killer at the Christmas parade in Wisconsin and how on earth he was freed for a mere $1,000 after, of all things, trying to apparently run over the mother of his child. How does that happen? We're going to talk through that. Then I want to talk through uh, Kyle Rittenhouse and his possibility of suing for defamation. What does that look like? I have seen a lot of people speculate. A lot of people say this is totally a slam dunk. What are the elements of defamation and what do you need to know? So we're going to get to those two things, answer those questions and so much more today. But first, friends, there is no way to spend this. Our country is in a state of emergency. We've seen a total failure of government. The botched exit from Afghanistan makes us less safe than we have been in years. Disastrous economic policies have inflation soaring. And your freedoms and liberties are at risk with outrageous government overreach, the closing of businesses, and mandates that violate the U.S. Constitution. So now is the time for Americans to take steps to protect your finances and retirements. When times are turbulent, you need an asset that protects you. And that's why investing in gold is the right move. And I trust my friends at Legacy Precious Metals. Gold offers a hedge against inflation and protects you from the volatile financial markets. Legacy Precious Metals is a company that you can trust to give you good and patient counsel for your personal situation. Their team of experts has decades of experience helping Americans like you and me make the right decision for ourselves and our families. So call Legacy Precious Metals today at 866-528-1903. That's 866-528-1903. Or you can visit them online at LegacyPMInvestments.com and download their free investor's guide just in time for the holidays. All right, so let's get to this first issue of how the killer at the Christmas parade in Wisconsin was released for a $1,000 bond. Uh, Even the Milwaukee District Attorney's Office admitted that this was very low bail and it was a horrible mistake. They issued this statement, quote, the state's bail recommendation in this case was inappropriately low in light of the nature of the recent charges and the pending charges against the suspect. The bail recommendation in this case is not consistent with the approach of the Milwaukee County District Attorney's Office toward matters involving violent crime, nor was it consistent with the risk assessment of the defendant prior to the setting of bail, unquote. Another story uh, that I read this morning notes that the same district attorney Quote, has been a leading figure among progressive prosecutors, left-wing lawmen who favor diversionary programs and community building to lock up criminal defendants. His handling of the Brooks case, uh, that's that's the guy Daryl Brooks is the suspect, uh, is already sparking blowback to their growing influence over the justice system, much of which has been boosted by financial contributions from the left-wing billionaire George Soros. So that was from Free Beacon. So this is uh, this is interesting. So let's talk first about bail generally. So uh, when a suspect is taken into custody, 
charges are filed, uh, then typically there's what's called a bail schedule. And so uh, district attorneys and the prosecutors will go and make arguments and ask the judge to set a certain bail amount. And generally speaking, that is based on a metric that will take into account um, the defendant's prior criminal history um, that's known at the time of bail setting. Um, it also takes into account whether the defendant has had any previous uh, what they call FTAs or failure to appear, uh, because that's the whole point of bail is to ensure, uh, first of all, that the defendant shows up to their next uh, court appearance dates, but then also that it ensures community safety. So there is also a community safety risk assessment that goes into the calculation of bail. And so based on that metric, then that's what uh, typically a, a district attorney will recommend to a judge. And the defense attorney can always, of course, argue for lower bail um, most of the time uh, in in misdemeanor cases. And uh, depending on the circumstances, if defense counsel is present, they'll ask for um, ROR, release on your, their own recognizance. They'll ask for um, a personal uh, PR bond, which is a personal uh, recognizance bond, meaning you just have to sign for it and say to the court, yes, I'm going to come back. There's There are not community safety issues. Or they'll argue for a surety bond. Um, surety bonds, generally speaking, are um, when when the bail is set in the hundreds of thousands of dollars or even several thousand dollars, a surety bond will allow a professional bonds person and bond company to post a bond for the defendant who then only has to pay generally a percentage of that bond in cash to the surety, and then the surety will tell the court, we'll be responsible for this. And then if there is a failure to appear, then that surety is on the line and they have a lot of incentive to make sure that the defendant actually shows up. So bond calculation um, really doesn't involve a lot of uh, necessarily argumentation. Um, in my experience of both being a prosecutor and a defense attorney, um, you heard my friend Mike Molito yesterday, who um, I've worked with for a long time. Um, you know, he and I have have a lot of experience in court um, arguing bond recommendations to the judge, who ultimately is the one that will impose uh, whatever uh, bond is set. And the judge will typically take the district attorney's recommendation if it's something that's wildly over the typical bond schedule, then the judge will hear arguments. Um, or the judge may just say, you know, I've looked at the arrest warrant, I've looked at the record, um, I'm going to set this higher than um, even what the DA is asking. I've seen that happen before. So there's a lot of different calculations. Uh, under the U.S. Constitution, the right to a reasonable bail is part of our Eighth Amendment protections. And the reason for that and the reason that leftists generally <clears throat> are talking about uh, reasonable bail and lowering this and saying this is actually oppressive and they think that bond scheduling is racist because uh, it tends to, in their opinion, and some some people have argued this, that when bonds are set in cash, that makes it much, much more difficult for lower income individuals who are simply <clears throat> accused of a crime to then post their bail. And so they will end up sitting in jail for several weeks, lose their job, have a lot of other uh, collateral consequences because they can't even afford several, several hundred dollars to post their bail. So the left has been trying as part of this whole idea of criminal justice reform, which is, quote unquote, reimagining uh, criminal justice and bail, 
they have been asking for lower bail amounts um, and lower bond amounts because they think that the system is systemically racist. So enter the George Soros component. We've seen over uh, the course of the last uh, probably you know four, five, six years, there's been a concerted effort by George Soros to install different prosecutors in all of these states. And I was actually talking with a friend of mine who is um, a one of the district attorneys in Colorado who um, I've worked with for a long time. Um, he's been a really, really good friend of mine. I'll have to have him on the show sometime if he will. Uh, come on. And he's just an excellent prosecutor. And um, he was saying how difficult this has been in Colorado even for uh, different Soros-backed prosecutors because um, that's an elected position. So district attorneys campaign uh, just like a candidate for um, any other political office. They're part of the executive branch, so they enforce the law. Um, it's actually not part of the judiciary in that sense. Those are the judges. Uh, district attorneys go in and on behalf of we the people on behalf of the state or um, if it's a if it's a federal case, if they're a U.S. Uh, attorney um, and those are uh, appointed differently, obviously, through the DOJ um, and the executive branch on the federal level. But on the state side, um, like here in Colorado, the um, district attorneys in every county are elected and most people don't pay that much attention to who their local D.A. is and they don't really pay attention. Are they running as a Democrat or a Republican? This matters because often and as the Free Beacon reported Often, Democrats tend to focus on uh, rehabilitation of uh, defendants. They focus on other types of diversion programs. Um, that's that's a, a way that you can resolve a case um, to do some sort of uh, classes or therapy or something as an alternative to traditional punitive sanctions like jail time. So particularly in a juvenile context, a lot of times a diversion program uh, tends to be what the DAs and the defense attorneys will try to reach uh, just to keep uh, a juvenile record clean. So often diversion programs as well, um, if the defendant is successful in completing them, they're often like a deferred sentence, uh, where a deferred sentence would mean that the defendant enters a plea of guilty to a charge. It could be a lower charge, what was originally charged. Um, it could be something totally separate that the parties agree on. They enter into a plea, but there is not a conviction yet on their record. So then they enter into the deferred sentence. Uh, they complete uh, whatever program they are uh, required to do under the terms of the plea agreement. Um, that can include jail time. And if they are successful in completing all of the terms and conditions of the deferred sentence, then they go back in front of the court. The plea is actually withdrawn and the case is dismissed. So deferred sentences are appropriate in some instances and in others. Um, that actually means that the conviction and what the defendant was originally accused of and pled guilty of never shows up on their record. So these are all kinds of different ways that cases can be resolved in a criminal justice context. And there are a lot of really good reasons why a prosecutor might be willing to have a defendant enter into a deferred sentence. But the problem becomes when Democrats who are leading these offices, if their approach to the criminal justice system is one that favors these types of rehabilitation criminology philosophies, 
that are much more focused on psychology and rehabilitating uh, violent criminals and putting them back out into the community, not just with bond and bail initially, but with the resolution of the cases, then all they're doing is signaling to the defendant and to the community at large, we're not taking this seriously with punitive sanctions. We are going to just try to coach life coach you back into rehabilitation. And now again, diversion, there can be really good reasons for that. And um, as a defense attorney, I've argued successfully uh, many times for deferred sentences, for alternative uh, methods of punitive sanctions, you know, all kinds of different plea agreements that, um, that necessarily matter to the outcome and the resolution of my client's case. But the point here is that prosecutors from the posture of a Republican versus a Democrat Democrats often have an idea of the criminal justice system that doesn't necessarily take into account community safety and actually representing the people as a whole. So it doesn't become an adversarial system in that sense. And Republicans, of course, and um, offices even that I've worked for in the past, um, sometimes can take too hard line of an approach. And they can say, well, for quote unquote fairness or for um, equality even and making sure that everyone is treated the same, we are just going to have a schedule that says if you are alleged to have committed this type of crime and you have um, X number of convictions in your past or you have um, you know this and this metric, then we're just going to input all of this data into the system and then out pops the uh, plea agreement recommendation. That doesn't take into account the specific instances of each individual um, instance of an alleged offense. Uh, There's only so many types of criminal offenses that DAs charge. And there are tons of different facts. There are mitigating circumstances. Um, As a DA myself, I was always willing to at least listen to defense counsel and say, absolutely, give me everything that you have that you want me to know in taking into consideration when offering a plea agreement, because I want to know that. And if there's some extenuating circumstance, if there's some sort of mitigation, like the prosecutors in the Rittenhouse case, they should have looked at that not as, okay, there is a killing that used a gun and, you know, XYZ factors, and therefore we are going to charge this regardless of what the video shows, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of whether or not we even think that we can overcome our burden to prove each and every element of this beyond any and all reasonable doubt. So there's a lot of analysis that goes into it. And Republicans do generally, and conservatives, need to be of the mindset that, yes, the justice system is for the protection of the community at large to promote good, restrain evil, but also take into account individual offenders and to take into consideration, can we rehabilitate them? Yes, but also a punitive element is appropriate in different types of offenses. And also setting a reasonable bail doesn't mean that you just let violent offenders back out on the street because, well, hey, we don't really care and we want to make sure that we don't appear racist. So we're going to set this so low with someone who, you know, just recently committed the exact same type of alleged offense as this one. And so, and my thought, and I don't know this yet, but my speculation on the Brooks case 
is that he's already on bond for that type of case. If that's if he had just committed that, then that would go against his bail in that case. So you're seeing how when bail is set so low for individual violent offenders, they have no incentive to comply with their bond conditions or even show up to court. And that's exactly what the George Soros prosecutors are trying to do. They're trying to undermine the system from within. So this is even a further step beyond just not backing the blue and defunding police and saying that law enforcement needs social workers instead of actual police officers that are competent to do their job. This is then George Soros and his backers and the extreme far progressive left appointing people in these prosecutorial roles that aren't actually doing their job. And they have an orientation toward our justice system that it's so systemically racist that we can't impose actual consequences for people's behavior. And we can't look at the bail system as what is it is intended to do, not only under the U.S. Constitution, but under our rule of law. And so in this instance with Brooks, with just what has been reported, and I'm you know taking those reports for what they are and assuming that you know there are probably other facts that we don't know right now, but just by way of example, for Brooks to have committed this other offense so recently of trying to um, apparently run over the mother of his child with a vehicle and then is released on a $1,000 bond and then is back in court. Uh, or is released on bond in that, and then is back in court now, released on a thousand dollar bond for running over over forty people with an SUV. There's no way. Is it just because he's black? Probably. And this is where the prosecutors' offices have come under so much political pressure to not just treat everyone, regardless of skin color. Uh, the same and equal justice under the law, but actually to prefer black people, regardless of what the alleged offense is, because they don't want to appear racist. And what is that doing? That's undermining the community safety value of what their entire job is all about. So we have to be very careful in these cases, not only you know, obviously, every individual citizen is not part of the justice system on a on a daily level, but we have to pay attention to our state and local elections. Know who your district attorney is. Uh, know what party they're from. Know what their philosophy is on enforcing justice. Um, know who is running in the next cycle and support the candidates who understand that law and order matters. And they're not trying to just um, enforce the law. They're trying to be smart about it. Now, in all honesty, and, and you all know that I have left the Republican Party in the sense of the capital R RNC um, over a lot of issues that the, the the National Republican Party doesn't represent conservative values. But even then, um, as a lifelong registered Republican, and I've certainly not abandoned conservatism, um, the Republican Party has abandoned conservatives. Um, but as a lifelong conservative, and even as a member of the Republican Party, I have paid attention to this, uh, this issue with district attorneys, because I've worked as a prosecutor and criminal defense attorney throughout um, actually the bulk of my career, as well as, um, you know, constitutional issues and, um, and, and a lot of other things. But because of uh, my expertise in this area and, and just experience, 
Um, there have been a number of candidates here in Colorado that I have supported um, who are running actually as Democrats. And that may surprise you. But the reason for that is because I always support a candidate, not just based on the party they represent, but also their philosophy and also the county that they're in. So for example, um, I supported a candidate in, uh, in Denver County, which is very, very liberal. Um, there's likely no way that a Republican uh, for district attorney is going to be elected in that particular county. So looking at the three primary candidates who were all Democrats who were running, I got to know personally, I, I talked with each of them and asked them and asked some of my friends who've you know, been DAs throughout the state, um, who did they support and whose philosophy was the best one to actually approach this in uh, and approach the criminal justice system in the constitutionally appropriate way and the purpose of what our system is all about. And so I ended up picking a candidate. I campaigned for him. I supported him, donated all of that. And um, he was a Democrat, right? And so that's that to me, it makes sense. And I hope that um, throughout our conversations on this show, you're also seeing that we can't be so myopically focused on just one party that we support anyone, regardless of where they're running um, and and who their opponents are and and all of this. Just we, that we don't care about who that who they are personally, their philosophy. But we're smart about this, and of course, majorities in state legislatures and in Congress matter. Uh, there's not a majority element to district attorneys. Uh, it matters to that specific county. So especially in that sense, um, it didn't matter to me whether they were running as a Republican or a Democrat. It mattered to me that they had the right philosophy and could win. So um, so generally speaking, though, be very cautious of district attorneys who are Democrats, just as a general matter, because they tend to have a perspective on the criminal justice system that is not constitutionally sound and is not something that actually promotes what a district attorney's role and responsibility is. And that's what I think we're seeing here in Milwaukee. We're seeing the fear of district attorneys that they don't want to have this pressure and they don't want to be called racist. So they are on purpose undermining their role and responsibility. And look at what happens. Look at what happens to all of these violent criminals that get released. And this is just one story that has gotten uh, national attention because it's been so horrific. It's in Wisconsin. Um, you know, whether or not it was connected to Rittenhouse, we still don't know two days later. And by the way, why don't we know that? Um, I think that we should have a lot more information from the police at this point. But there are so many instances daily that violent criminals who are released, uh, whether it is pre or post conviction, then end up committing offenses and reoffending because the criminal justice system is being undermined from within. So this is an incredibly important issue. And we're going to talk about this more uh, leading up to 2022. But you have a lot of time right now to look at your state, look at the county that you live in, get to know who your DA is, what their philosophy is, and especially in the next elections, be involved. Uh, campaign for and support and donate to um, the DAs that are not Soros backed, absolutely, and also the DA that is willing to do uh, whatsoever justice requires and understands how our justice system works.
All right. So before we get into the Rittenhouse case and the elements of defamation that are really fascinating, actually, I want to talk to you about my friend Mike Lindell. All of you out there know that My Pillow doesn't have their box stores or shopping channels. They've been part of this cancel culture, and they want to pass on the savings now directly to you. So you can get the lowest price in the history of My Pillow for their classic standard My Pillow, regularly sixty nine ninety eight, now only nineteen ninety eight with promo code Jenna. You have to use the promo code. That's J-E-N-N-A. You can go to MyPillow.com, click on the radio listeners button, and that is uh, the website that you can do all of your shopping, do Christmas shopping, uh, make sure that you are sleeping well before Christmas, before Santa comes, and make sure you use the promo code Jenna. That's J-E-N-N-A. So MyPillow is not just pillows. They have over 150 products. I have so many of the MyPillow products that I love, including the My Slippers. There are My Blankets. There are so many other great things, everything from sleepwear to new beds. So the promo code Jenna also works at MyStore.com and FrankSpeech.com. So go to MyPillow.com or call 1-800-564-8475 and use the promo code Jenna. All right, so I assume that at least most of my listeners have seen the Tucker Carlson interview last night with Kyle Rittenhouse, or at least some clips on social media. Um, It was really fascinating to me to see a very, very articulate 18-year-old in Kyle Rittenhouse who very competently handled that interview. And um, you can tell, at least in my opinion, that it was probably prepped a little bit because he used a couple of key words that were definitely legal words that I think the average 18-year-old probably wouldn't know. But listen, he has lived with this case and with all of the stress and um, all of the the facts surrounding you know the media coverage uh, that is so insane of this case for the last year. So he's probably learned a lot. Um, so he said that he has lawyers that are working on uh, his case, and when he was asked by Tucker about defamation. And he is not a public figure. So what's interesting about this is, generally speaking, when you talk about um, defamation of a public figure, that's someone who, um, like me, for example, I am a public figure because I've been in the media. I'm a contributor to Newsmax. Um, I have my my podcast here. I was uh, very prominently um, a spokesperson for uh, Donald Trump, uh, you know, one of his attorneys, um, all of those things. Um, I, I am and and was a public figure. And so, um, so with public figures, because so many people can talk about public figures, it's expected that there is, um, you know, some element of loving or hating a public figure. Go to my Twitter feed, you can see how many people hate me. Totally okay. <laughs> so, you know, the, the, the my haters are my motivators, it cracks me up. But, um, but when you actually then if I were to sue someone over defamation, as a public figure, I would have to show actual malice as an additional element of defamation. And so that is actually a higher standard for public figures, just because there's an expectation in the law that uh, there will be more news reports and more newsworthy things for people who are public figures. Certainly um, any public official 
any public office holder, uh, the president, uh, you know, a lot of, of the public figures. Certainly you can understand why public figures are talked about a lot more in media. But Kyle Rittenhouse is uh, a 17-year-old whose case was launched to national prominence uh, simply because of the facts and circumstances and the, um, and frankly, you know, all of the political factors that surrounded this case. And so even though the nation has been paying attention to this case, uh, certainly since last year, but especially as the case has progressed now through trial and then verdict and afterwards, that doesn't mean that Kyle is a public figure. He's not. He is a private citizen and he is definitely a private figure. So to prove defamation and he then, when he's suing, would have the burden of proof. This would be a civil suit, so not in the criminal justice system that we've been talking about. So along the spectrum of proof, he doesn't have to show this beyond a reasonable doubt. That's a criminal justice standard. He would just have to show this beyond what's called a preponderance of the evidence or 50% plus one or more likely than not, right? So he would have to show uh, four things. First, that there was a false statement purporting to be fact. That's going to be the most important one. Second, publication or communication of that statement to a third person. Third, fault amounting to at least negligence. And four, damages or some harm caused to the person who is the subject of the statement. Okay, so let's go through that. First, a false statement purporting to be fact. So in Kyle's case, for example, when there have been media outlets that pre-verdict are calling him a murderer. That is a false statement because murder is a legal def uh, definition that amounts to an unlawful and unjustified killing. And obviously, when the verdict was handed down and he has been acquitted of all of the charges, he is not, as a matter of law and fact, a murderer. Now, did he kill two people? Yes, no one has been disputing that. Uh, Kyle himself didn't dispute that. But the issue of being a murderer is very different than saying he killed two people. So particularly when you have a lot of these news outlets that are still after the verdict, like Whoopi Goldberg just yesterday, saying, I don't care, I, I think he's a murderer, and I'm going to call him a murderer. And I'm paraphrasing her a little bit, but she she said and she was she still called him a murderer. That is a false statement purporting to be fact. Now, she tried to couch it as an opinion statement. Um, if you have the opinion as a news outlet um, that the verdict was wrong or you think it was unjust all of those things are opinions, and we can all certainly have opinions um, on the Rittenhouse verdict. You've seen all of those opinions over the last few days. But when you're actually talking about a statement purporting to be fact, like if someone said, if, if let's say an outlet um, or a commentator like Whoopi Goldberg says, Kyle is a murderer, that is a false factual statement based on the jury verdict. Prior to the jury verdict, he was only alleged to be. And that's why you see when talking about all of these uh, th these cases that have allegations of criminal conduct, that's why it's so important for media outlets to use the term alleged, because right now nobody knows. There hasn't been finding as a fact. There hasn't been a plea of guilty. Um, all of the facts haven't come out yet. So it we can all talk about it. But 
for purposes of defamation, um, outlets, news outlets need to be very careful because they're not purporting to be opinion. They're purporting to be fact. And obviously the second, so that's the first element of defamation. The second is that it's publication or communication to a third person. Obviously, these news outlets intended to publish this to a third person there. That's what news outlets do. Um, but even tweets, things like that, it's a it's obviously a statement to a third person. And by third person, they mean someone other than the statement maker and the person who's the subject of the statement. So if Whoopi Goldberg, for example, said something just to Kyle alone by himself, that wouldn't qualify as communication of that statement to a third person. But obviously on The View, which is where she made those statements, um, people who are on Twitter, uh, publications who disseminate their media to all of their readers, that qualifies as a publication or communication of a statement to a third person. Fault amounting to at least negligence. That's the third prong here, the third element. Um, so negligence just means that they should have known better than this. And obviously, with all of the coverage that has gone on, uh, that's a pretty easy element to prove. You don't have to even prove recklessness, um, like they acted with intentional disregard of the possible consequences. But negligence just means they should have known better. And damages or some harm caused to the person, well, Kyle has been the subject of so much uh, media scrutiny. His life is uh, forever changed. He's, his attorney has said he's probably going to have to move out of um, his home area just based on all of the threats he's receiving, the public perception. Um, there is articulable harm and damages. Um, for him, he was saying even in uh, the, the Tucker Carlson interview and what I understand is going to be a larger documentary that he's had sleepless nights. He's had a lot of uh, stress, whether there's therapy involved, you know, all of these things that can be directly attributed, not just to the stress of undergoing this trial, but how the mainstream media has negligently defamed him with all of these false statements to shape the public perception about him as a private citizen when he was going through the justice system and had the presumption of innocence. So um, so defamation is not quite as simple as just saying, well, there was some negative publicity about it. Negativity, something that's negative doesn't mean that it's false. Um, there's a lot of things right now about Joe Biden that are definitely negative, but definitely absolutely true, right? So negativity or just because you don't like what the press is saying about you doesn't equate to falsity. So that's an important distinction that just because something is negative does not mean that it's defamatory under the law or just because you didn't like the outcome of, um, you know, for example, uh, the trial. Um, just if if someone didn't like that and they, um, you know, they thought that it caused harm to them, or, you know, one of the witnesses or something like that, that doesn't mean that they were defamed. Um, so also, for example, the um, alleged victims in that case, right? Uh, the, the two, well, the two guys that were killed, but then the third one who was shot. In the course of litigation, and there's also something called litigation immunity, um, which is a whole separate defense to defamation, but um, in the context of the trial, a lot of bad facts came out and a lot of pretty negative things came out about the three separate men that Kyle shot. Uh, those things are facts and they may be very, very negative, but that doesn't mean that the families of um, Rosenbaum and the others, or, um, or even the one man, and I'm forgetting his name, who was shot, um, 
can then sue the defense somehow just because they had negative publicity. So defamation is a very specific uh, type of civil matter that deals expressly with false statements amounting to at least negligence when you're talking about a private person, publication to a third party, and some damages or harm. I think just from a very cursory perspective of what I've seen in the media and everything that's been going on in Kyle's case, um, certainly there have been several outlets and media personalities on the left that seem to qualify pretty easily for a prima facie defamation case. And so um, it'll be interesting to follow this and to see uh, who and where Kyle's attorneys uh, sue if they sue for defamation. So we'll be following that. But for purposes of this conversation, the big takeaway point is defamation is not just about negative publicity. It's about very specific elements that you have to prove in court And it's a false statement purporting to be fact. That's the key element beyond publication, et cetera. A false statement purporting to be fact, not just opinion or not a truthful statement. So this will be interesting to see. It's been great joining you all today and happy Thanksgiving week. I'll join you tomorrow. And uh, this has been The Jenna Ellis Show.